0: Welcome to Climate Psychology Conversations. My name's Ray Tockfer. Today's episode is about taking action. What exactly does taking action look like when you're a climate-aware mental health professional? I don't know about you, but when I encounter the term taking action out in the world when I'm reading something or attending an activist meeting, I usually make a quick jump from the words taking action to something very concrete, something maybe I've seen in the media before, like rushing out onto a street to protest, or writing a letter to my district representative. Maybe you do that too. And maybe that's the right cognitive jump in most cases. But are we sure it's always the right jump? Might those kinds of easy assumptions about taking action limit us? And does the climate-aware mental health profession have particular responsibilities to take action that are different than, say, climate-aware plumbers or climate-aware architects? This episode follows four quite different clinicians, each coming from a separate discipline of mental health care. I speak to a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, a social worker, and a counselor. You could think of this episode as a sort of menu of possibility for action-taking, a buffet of different potential approaches. And who knows? over the course of the buffet, maybe you'll find the right dish or combo plate for you. For our first perspective, let's head over to Maryland and listen in to a Zoom meeting for the Economic Matters Committee of the Maryland State Legislature. The first witness is gonna be Jonathan
1: Gorman. Good afternoon. So why is a psychologist testifying for a climate bill? In my professional opinion, The climate crisis is in fact the greatest mental health crisis we face.
0: So that's John Gorman. He's a practicing clinical psychologist from Towson, Maryland, and an assistant clinical professor at Loyola University. And just to be clear here, he does not know what he's doing. And I have proof.
1: I want to emphasize I am not an expert. I don't know what I'm doing here.
0: (laughs) So how did John end up testifying in Maryland on behalf of a climate bill?
1: Yeah, I think so many people um, hold themselves back because they don't know how to get involved or they find themselves waiting for the perfect way to get involved or the most effective way to get involved or what's going to have the biggest, best impact. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that uh, we know the answers to that at the outset. Speaking from my own personal experience, I've learned so much along the way just by kind of jumping into the ring and being open to learning about the process.
0: So how did John first jump in? Six years ago, John realized that his local delegate in Maryland, Dana Stein, was working on the environmental committee in his state. And so he figures, why not just contact him and see where it goes?
1: I reached out and said, hey, I'm a psychologist. This is an area that I'm interested in. If there are any ways that I can support what you're doing, please let me know.
0: So by his own admission, John becomes a Dana Stein groupie.
1: I started to attend events that he would go to. I showed up and each time I would introduce myself and uh, ask if there are any ways that I can get involved. I started to follow some of the bills that he was proposing. That progressed over time where just this past session, He was one of the co-sponsors for Maryland's Climate Solutions Now Act, which is kind of like a mini version of the Green New Deal that would be relevant just for the state of Maryland. I reached out and asked, would it be helpful to have a psychologist testifying for this bill when this bill is being heard within its committee during the uh, state general assembly? And he said, sure, actually, that would be great. It would be Really unique to have a psychologist's perspective talking about how climate change is impacting the psychological health of our community.
0: Eventually, as you've already heard, John really did get to testify.
1: And so I was given two minutes to talk in front of this committee for the uh, Maryland state legislature advocating why this is a bill that should be passed.
0: And that testimony led to some unexpected new stuff.
1: Somebody from the Sierra Club happened to be watching and reached out to me. Somebody from the Maryland League of Conservation Voters happened to be watching that and reached out to me. Uh, the, the latter person, the person from the um, League of Conservation Voters, said, hey, would you be willing to take this message and write a letter to the editor for our state's newspaper?" So, I wrote, (laughs) this person helped to encourage me to write a letter to the editor to the Baltimore Sun, and it was then published. Um, And then that uh, letter to the editor was shared around.
0: That's how I learned about John, actually, was through that Baltimore Sun article. I asked him if his skills as a therapist had any role to play in all of this, and this was his answer.
1: The skills for advocacy are the same skills that all mental health professionals are trained in. So, for example, Advocacy skills are skills related to relationship building, communication, strategic analysis, understanding research. These are the skills that mental health professionals are trained on. Any of us can um, probably do a really good job at building relationships, at communicating um, research findings, that understanding research and finding a way to talk about that to a lay audience, people that are not familiar with the, the scientific underpinnings of the research.
0: I've met other clinicians who would agree with John here. For example, Dr. Lee's Van Susteren.
2: That's what we do, behavior change for a living. That's the essence of what a mental health professional does. Who better than us to talk about the need to address climate and to change our behaviors?
0: It's possible that you've already heard Lise speaking on something like CNN about the links between climate change and mental health. Lise is a general forensic psychiatrist. She's based in Washington, D.C., and she regularly speaks to major media outlets as an expert on the relationship between climate change and mental health. She's also done a fair amount of reflecting on the professional responsibilities specific to this field.
2: Let's talk for a second about what a privilege it is to be able to have an education uh, that would allow you uh, to become a mental health professional. Let's talk about the privilege of people trusting you with their secrets of essentially having been born with the wherewithal to take advantage of an education. With those privileges comes a responsibility to take action to restore or provide or share the bounty that we have had and certainly uh, to attempt or do everything that we can to restore safety to the people who look to us uh, for their futures. So yes, it's a duty. We have the skills, we have the training, we have the standing in the community. Uh, It is our duty uh, to take action.
0: Lise isn't just throwing the word duty out there, she's referring to a very specific ethical and legal precedent called the duty to warn.
2: Now, uh, the strict statement duty to warn, uh, some will remember, particularly if there are any forensic psychiatrists or psychologists listening, there's a famous case in California, uh, the Tarasov case, in which a young man murders his girlfriend and had told his therapist ahead of time that he was going to do that. And it's a complex story going back and forth as it always does. But finally, the Supreme Court of California stated that the privilege of privacy, which was what his therapist had claimed kept him from alerting authorities, ends where the public peril begins.
0: In Lisa's opinion, that duty absolutely extends into climate change.
2: It was Teresoff in my mind that made me also realize that we have this responsibility, this duty, people are in imminent danger. With the duty to warn at
0: the back of her mind and this imminent danger at the forefront, Lee started doing what she's already good at. She started testifying in major court cases, but this time as a climate mental health clinician. She served as an expert witness, for instance, on the ongoing federal case, Juliana v. United States, in which 21 youth plaintiffs and the climate scientist James Hansen are currently suing the federal government for inaction on climate on constitutional grounds. They argue that young people's right to life, liberty, and property has been compromised by government failure to address the crisis. They brought in Lees, as an expert psychological profiler, to testify about the ways that climate change is impacting the mental health of each one of the 21 youth plaintiffs involved. Now, I want to take a pause here, because both John and Lees have a history of testifying in different ways, but testimony is, of course, only one of many different ways to take action on climate issues. Lees, for instance, also applies duty to warn to organizing within the mental health professional field itself.
2: We need our major organizations that represent mental health professionals to recognize how close we are to the edge. And in recognizing those tipping points, I think that our professional organizations, which after all, all of us have been trained in science here. I mean, it's not like we dispute science theoretically, but that we would recognize why it's so important to act urgently, why we can't wait, why we can't just focus on symptoms and pathologize Uh, Disorders. why we have to develop a new model to build resiliency, why we have to now have community engagement, why we have to have a subspecialty in climate and mental health so that we have people who know how to do this, who have been trained to talk to people from different walks of life, who understand what BIPOC communities have gone through, who know how to speak in front of elected officials, who have an understanding of climate science and energy policy 101. We need specialists in this field to ignite what would otherwise be a more passive but deadly reticence on the part of everyone else.
0: I ask Lise, how do individuals in this field make that happen?
2: So whatever we feel we are good at, what our passion is, what our place is, what our standing uh, is, uh, personality, et cetera, all of those things must be taken into consideration as we hold up this imperative uh, to do all that we can while we still can.
0: I suspect that for many of us, getting to that point of knowing what you can contribute is a journey. It certainly was like that for Debbie Crawford-Stern. She's a licensed clinical counselor and a professor at James Madison University, where she studies climate change, mental health, community resilience, disaster response, and trauma. For Debbie, taking action within her professional community, which is counselors, took some time to figure out.
3: For a long time, I thought, like, I I don't have the background and the credentials to be the voice or to be a leader in this. Um, And I've always thought of myself as more of a worker bee. You know, I've got a blue, blue blue-collar background, I'm a worker bee, I'm a behind the scenes person. And so nothing about particularly my work around climate change made any sense of me of being a forefront person. But it definitely didn't stay that way. In 2017, I I had an article published in Counseling Today. Um, that introduced the idea of the intersection between climate change and mental health and counseling. And I thought, well, this is it. Wrote the article. People are gonna be like, Yes, we need to do something. It'll be awesome. And then it was crickets. It was nothing for months and months. And I think that for me was the turning point. You know, people are like, Oh, that's a really nice article, and like that was it. And I just thought somebody was gonna do something, and it was like, I guess it's me. <laughs>
0: It took getting to that point for Debbie to find what she calls her inner advocate.
3: The inner advocate is the part that shifts from feeling it to wanting to really do something about it. And, you know, what that advocate looks like is, again, it comes from that inner place of knowing what is your way of making a difference? What's your way of of saying something or doing something, writing something? It's like, what is your way? So I I think the inner advocate is that point in time where you shift from feeling it to really feeling compelled to move and act.
0: Following her own inner advocate, Debbie quickly discovered that listening
3: was her greatest strength. The best things that I've been able to do are because I've listened to people um, and I've listened to their responses and reactions and like that fuels me. She gave me an example from 2019. So we were at the um, Association for Counselor, Educators and Supervisors, ACES, conference in seattle and we just did this like drop-in room for anybody who wanted to talk about climate change and mental health and a whole group of people showed up and all they wanted to talk about was recycling and i thought okay we have some work to do (laughs) and for me like listening the the fact that people showed up was good um the fact that it was Title, drop in to talk about climate change and mental health and their interpretation of that was recycling. And, and, and why is the conference using plastic bottles was interesting to me and it made me think, I think we need to do a lot of like, one plus one is two education. And that really shifted me 100% because I thought like, okay, now I have an idea of where the, uh, the counseling field is. And it, um, it just changed like all of my perception of advocacy and movement and timing. And, and so from that point forward, like I, I had a, I had a presentation that I did that I kind of liked the way it worked. And I reached out to every counseling association in the country and offered to do free lunch and learns for like literally anybody who would have me. And I did a whole bunch of them, which I thought would be a couple people, you know, having lunch. Um, I, I mean, I had over 200 in one state. So
0: how's your journey going, figuring out your own inner advocate? I suspect it's never ending.
3: Whether you feel you've found it or not, Debbie has some advice. I think there's a lot of self-reflection that's important there. Um, and also uh, a lot of self-compassion. Like you don't have to be perfect um, at all. And you, you don't have to get it right all the time and you don't have to be like impressive or or anything. Like just figure out something that speaks to you and 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 move in some way. And if and if you think like I don't know what to do myself, I'm not really sure how to get started, it's like don't do it yourself. Find somebody else, partner with somebody, get involved in some capacity. But I think the way to be successful, the way to feel comfortable and and to, to feel like this is a place for you to, like your inner advocate has a place, is to align with your true self.
0: In this episode so far, we've been talking about very concrete things traditionally associated with taking action things like testifying in court, or advocating to politicians, or giving talks in professional organizations. But what if, before even considering taking action, we need to question the very professional foundation upon which mental health clinicians have guided their work, and by extension, the actions they take, in the first place? Enter Rebecca Weston. Rebecca is a clinical social worker in a full-time private practice that focuses on trauma and attachment. And she's also co-president of Climate Psychology Alliance of North America. At CPANA, she's trying to build a network of mental health clinicians to address the mental health components of the climate crisis. Over the years, Rebecca really has developed her own professional ethic.
4: And that ethic actually starts with a warning. Codes of conduct and norms of professional identity and norms of professional boundaries are created in a world that is already unjust, in a world that is already... Um, deeply and systemically uh racist and and sexist like in that world where the norms are created professions tend to be conservative so for example this profession has talked a lot about racial discrepancies in intelligence or this profession at one point thought that homosexuality was was a disease, was it? Was a developmental problem, was an illness, professionals who thought they were doing the right thing were clearly participating in and understanding the world from a very, very restricted normative basis.
0: The bedrock of Rebecca's ethic is not only that professionals in the climate mental health field need to be aware of these restrictive norms, which she also later calls the profession's malignant normalities, but also that professionals need to actively speak out to counteract those malignant normalities. She gets this ethic and this concept from the writings of the psychiatrist and outspoken anti-nuclear activist, Robert J. Lifton.
4: The, the thing about Robert J. Lifton is that he not only understood that the larger social, political, and economic world impacted people intra and interpersonally but that if we are in fact caring professionals, that we as, as professionals and as clinicians have an obligation to try to impact that world. It's not enough just to address people's intrapsychic or interpersonal dynamics that are harmed or created or impacted by that world, but that we need to exercise our voice in affecting change. To understand Rebecca's approach to taking
0: action, it helps to get a brief introduction to Robert J. Lifton's approach. He calls it being a witnessing professional. It's possible you're already familiar with Lifton, whether you know him by name or not, because after the 2016 election, he was one of the more prominent clinicians to actually publish his professional analysis of Trump's Psychological fitness for office, or lack thereof. Um, And he's been questioned pretty directly about that. So uh, Dr. Judith Herman, who is the famous trauma expert and a clinical psychiatry professor at Harvard Medical School, um, confronted him about it in a Psychology Today interview in 2018. Um, She said to him that people who had spoken out like him had, quote, been accused of politicizing psychiatry and then asked him point blank, quote, isn't that dangerous? His response was the opposite of what uh, the professional norms are today. His response was, quote, actually, what we're doing is the reverse of that. When psychiatry is politicized, psychiatrists become agents of the state, accommodating to malignant normality. When American psychiatrists emphasize the psychological unfitness of our head of state, it is the antithesis of politicized psychiatry. Rather, it is the expression of mental health professionals who see an ethical requirement to make use of our knowledge to warn of danger to our country and our people. This ethic of being a witnessing professional really speaks to Rebecca. And she takes the concept even further into every aspect of a climate aware mental health professional's practice. For Rebecca, the ethics of being a witnessing mental health professional is
4: suffused into the work of the therapy room itself. There is the norm that the clinician does not bring up on their own events from the outside world unless they are brought up by the client. There is a norm that we don't share our opinions about certain things. And that's a challenge, right? Because we are taught that we are, A, supposed to be fairly neutral in that space, as if, and we are taught that we are somehow imposing our political opinions on somebody and therefore depriving them of their own sense of curiosity, agency, self-exploration, There's a lot, I I have a lot of problems with that, even as I very profoundly respect the importance of boundaries. Those things reinforce a lot of ideas about the social and political world and their impact on mental health that I don't agree with. So for example, if I pretend that I'm neutral on a certain subject, that basically is communicating to the other person in the room, my client, the other person, that these issues are not safe space to talk about, even if they are profoundly impacting them, that they don't belong in that room, that what belongs in that room is private, individual, psychological. And so if they're having reactions to those things, if they're experiencing a whole lot of emotion about those things, then there must be something wrong with them, because this is the room that communicates about things that matter. If we don't bring these things up, then we are participating in the idea that things, things are okay, that things can just continue this way, that we're not actually in an existential crisis. By this ethic, the very act of bringing something like the climate crisis into the therapy
0: room is in itself a form of taking action. And Rebecca, of course, does not leave her professional responsibilities entirely to her client relationships. She sees enormous breadth of responsibility within Lifton's witnessing professional ethic, which I really got a sense of as she explained to me what she sees as the meaning of
4: witnessing in this context. So witnessing is to see. Witnessing is to hold. Witnessing is to um, bear witness and, and not look away, right? That, that's one aspect of witnessing. But witnessing also is to attest, I attest and proclaim that these things are happening in the world and I will use whatever forum I have to witness to the world that these are happening. Here's her take on professional. The profession needs to bring the world into its space and understand how these systemic issues impact the individual. Um, So certainly the professional as a profession needs to see that their purview is not just the individual psyche, but the larger social and economic arena in which people um, come to be born and realize their own sense of self and other and collective responsibility. And also to profess, to be able to take a stand, to say that we want a world where human beings have the right to feel secure, have the right to the basics of housing and education and all of these things to realize the human potential that's in in all of us and to profess against those massive collective structures that make that impossible systemically.
0: Okay, so here's the part where she starts applying all
4: of these ideas to climate psychology. And what I'm thinking about for climate psychologists is that we have all sorts of ways to do that, ranging from doing group work to talking about climate communications, to trying to address systems that don't think about trauma, to trying to provide support and care for teachers, and ultimately for advocating for structural and political change that actually addresses climate.
0: For Rebecca, taking action is not something extra you do as a climate-aware mental health
4: professional some of the time.
0: It's the root of what it means to be an ethical profession
4: in the first place. We have to get involved as a profession outside the parameters of our walls of the clinical walls and see that not only do we have something to offer, but that if we don't offer it, we are not actually following through with what it means to be both our professions, but as humans facing this existential crisis.
0: So there you have it, a buffet of approaches to taking action as a climate mental health professional. Did you find any dishes you like? If there's a theme in these four clinicians' experiences, I think it's this. You were the right person. There is work to be done, and now is the right time. Here's Lee's. Hey.
2: We're leaving critical realities about the way our brain functions on the table. When we could be using this to drive change, let's capture it, let's let's harness
3: it. And Debbie? There's a very important connection to be made. And if we can make that connection, we'll see um, shifting right at the, really at the grassroots level of mental health care. And John?
1: I think we need to redefine success as how, uh, um, how can I best live within the things that I value, the things that I care most about?
0: How can you best live within the things that you value? That question is now yours. For Climate Psychology Conversations, I'm Ray Talkfer. Thanks for listening.